Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. Hi, welcome to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and I'm your host today for the Arts Hour here on MPB. Each week, we bring you an in-depth discussion with a different creative Mississippian. And this week, we're going to be rebroadcasting an, an interview that we did back in 2011 with James Patterson, the Jackson-based photographer. James passed away on October 21st. Uh, we greatly miss him at the Arts Commission. He was a, a, a huge, important part of the work that we did there. He helped document many of our events, including the Governor's Awards and the Day at the Capitol. He was also an Artist Fellowship recipient in 2011, and that's the time period from which this uh, interview comes. It was uh, broadcast originally on September in September 2011, and we're talking a lot about his Artist Fellowship work here. James, thanks for coming and seeing us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Why don't you give people just kind of a little bit about who you are and, and what you do for those of you, who are the people tuning in who don't know you? Well, I'm uh, from Jackson. Well, I grew up here. Uh, I do editorial, commercial, um, portrait photography. It's uh, what you would think a commercial photographer did in Jackson, which is anything from portraits to architectural photography to product photography. But I've also concentrated on trying to do artwork over the last 20 years in that photography. I think the um, place for art is kind of where you work. So that's what I've been trying to do. And I think you have a really interesting um, work history in that you've worked in many different capacities within the arts world, not just, you know, creating artwork, curating it, teaching it. I mean, you've kind of seen all many many aspects of it well here you have to make your own way and it's you know you have to make a living and it's uh a, it's a great way to live you don't get rich in any of this we all know but you do have a better lifestyle or the lifestyle that i chose so yeah i've been able to work as a curator as a gallery at a gallery as my own gallery owner uh, i've worked in publishing editing books uh with uh, several artists. I've uh, worked uh, with lots of different areas of arts, teaching uh, at APAC in the public schools. I've worked with uh, other artists to help them promote their work. So that's what I always found interesting and just tried to make a living at it. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, we're, we're going to hit as many of those as we can today, but let's take you back and, and talk about how you first got interested, maybe not even in photography, but were you a, a creative kid? Were you a, did you draw or sketch or anything as a, as a child? How did you kind of get into the creative life? Well, actually, I love to read. Most people love to read. I had, uh, you know, relatives, grandparents, grandmother who loved to take photos on trips. And we had the proverbial family slideshow of all of her trips around the world. And I was just fascinated by the images, not all of them that she took, but the uh, slides you used to be able to buy of uh, your vacation and and she did a lot of traveling so we were uh, the whole family was put through the slideshow if anybody else remembers that and I was the only one that really liked it so I liked to take two of her slides and sandwich them together which disturbed her in the end and uh, you know you'd take two uh, underexposed images and make one out of it or uh, 
Yeah. So it did start off early, and then you know, in high school, I worked in you know the high school newspaper. College, I worked uh, in journalism more than anything, but that was always visual because I was doing the photography part and layout part of the paper. So I enjoyed an early visual background in seeing a lot of photography. And then it wasn't really until college that I started meeting painters and sculptors and uh, other people that were more creative. Mine was almost commercial creative. Yeah. So did you did you get a camera? Did you get a camera from high school and start taking pictures for the school paper, or is that how it kind of? I, I got like a ca- yeah Polaroid camera first when I was about eight, and mm-hmm. you know everybody loves the Polaroid now. I had a great one. I had the. Uh, Polaroid Big Shot, which is what Andy Warhol used. So I must have been somewhat aware of pop art at that time, which was this really long portrait camera that just took close-ups of the faces. And that's what he used to do these uh, portraits that he ended up silkscreening with. So really a, a neat camera. And then, uh, but, you know, had different cameras. My parents were real generous, and I had a dark room when I was about 13 years old oh in God. our house. So, uh, so were you, were you self-taught with that, or did you take classes? Or? Well, there weren't really classes back then, but, you know, the way most people learn back then, it was, it was you know, a great story. I'm sure he's safe now. We had a neighbor named Jimmy Holmes who worked at the highway department, uh, currently the, M, you know, MDOT now, but uh, he was the press agent. And uh, one of the other kids in the neighborhood and I were – invited up to help him do his press releases which were you had to do a hundred photos through the darkroom and he needed help to do that so we were hauled up there to help him he taught us how to do it and we went home with old film and old chemicals and uh you know he'd help us find a beat up enlarger and we took it from there oh wow that's great so it was just kind of like a just like the uh, the kids in the Super 8 movie, you just kind of grabbed the stuff and started doing it. So. Well, we, you know, back, I think even today, you know, everybody really needs somebody like, you know, Jimmy that that uh, would take kids under his wing and be glad to, you know, teach them and help them. And, you know, I, I, I can't imagine being able to drag two kids into a the MDOT anymore. And, and hmm. to, well, they don't have to because they have the digital stuff. Right. But, uh, you know, we had so many mentors back then who, you know, were unpaid and or underpaid. And um, we were just so lucky. And a lot of photographers started out with all those mentors. You're listening to the Arts Hour. And today is a rebroadcast of an interview with the photographer James Patterson from Jackson. Patterson passed away on October 21st. And so in tribute to him, we're replaying this interview with him today. So now when you were talking about going into college and kind of starting to be influenced by other visual artists, is that when you kind of started expanding your idea of what photography could be or how did that, how did that shape what you do now? Well, I was uh, at Southern and I had, you know, we had a couple of photography teachers, one journalism, a photojournalism teacher, one commercial photography, but we also had an art department with great teachers like Rita DeWitt, who is a photographer, also kind of a famous xerographer, somebody that was real early on in digital, in the digital movement. And we took classes with her and, you know, she encouraged us to take design, drawing and other classes. And so um, that's when, you know, I started looking at photography, 
seeing how other people approach photography, realizing that Cartier-Bresson, one of my favorite photographers, thought, you know, drawing was a much better skill to have than photography. And actually, when he retired from photography, became, you know, uh, a, an artist again with pencil. So I uh, realized that anything I was doing in photography, even though it's a mechanical process, needed to consider the deeper emotional and visual aspects of what you're trying to do. Yeah. So how did that express itself in the work that you, were you trying to take on some of those, those, the way the, the masters, you know, the early 20th century masters did things or what, what, what yeah, were your experiments? I, I started emulating, you know, and that's when you, I guess in college is when you start learning to steal from other people. Uh, you, you know, because you start seeing what you really like. And, uh, yeah, so I saw, I love Danny Lyons, a great photographer. So I started using kind of his um, processing mode in black and white, which is kind of a hard edge, grainy looking black and white thing. Man Ray, who everybody's seen their photos, the photograms, you know, it's it it wasn't so much about the technical process with some of the artist photographers, it became more about just the emotional aspect. And so I try to pick up more of that emotional aspect. I you know, try to do it to this day. I know photography is a mechanical process. And, you know, pretty much anybody that can work knobs and do a little arithmetic can figure out the process of it. However, the... Um, Emotional part has got very little to do with that. If you can get a great photo, if it's out of focus and badly exposed, it's still a great photo. And so, you know, the trick is really trying to combine those two, A, so I can make a living and mm -hmm. keep in focus and well-exposed photos, and B, so I can get something more than just a representation. Yeah. So how did that making a living thing work after college? Did you... How did you, what was your kind of first forays out of college in terms of photography? Uh, I worked in a, um, you know, everybody has to do a little bit of apprenticeships. Back then we did. I don't think you do so much anymore. But I worked with some great photographers as an assistant. I also worked in photo labs doing black and white printing lab work, something that is very mechanical and exacting that you have to know how to do. And so uh, the... Uh, it's still a learning process years after college. You know, it's it's not a lot of money, but you, I got to travel a lot. I worked with Dee Gorton, a really great photographer from Mississippi who is, you know, uh, known all over the country, working for Details Magazine and wonderful other people. Um, worked with several other photographers, learning how they did things. But it's still, you know, it's a process of, packing up their equipment, hauling it around and unpacking it and lighting and everything else. So it it was a really valuable experience. Mm -hmm. And the the interesting, I, I was wondering about the photo lab, you know, I remember, you know, those are, that's another thing that's kind of pretty much disappeared or for the most part, but that work has some, I mean, it has some judgment calls that you do in it. It's not just kind of uh, just mechanical work, I mean, in terms of working on other people's prints and trying to make well, you, the best of them? You have to think of it like being a, an editor in a um, 
well, a producer on an album, an editor with a book or something else, you're looking at the negative. You, 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 uh, it's, you're hopeful that you've got to talk to the original artist about what they were trying to convey and see their other work. But, yeah, you are interpreting their work, just like a gallery curator would do when they're hanging it. If this piece is hung in the wrong place with the wrong light, then, you know, it's a different meaning. It's, uh, I think they talk about letterboxing and not, you know, and editing a movie. And If you do it, you know, right, you're trying to make what the uh, artist saw come out to the observer. If you do it wrong, you know, you're just you know, you're losing the whole intent of the person. So I really, when you get a chance, you really try to know what the intent of the artist was and enhance that rather than just put out a product. Right, right. We're back on the Arts Hour. Today we're replaying an interview we did with James Patterson in the fall of 2011. James uh, passed away on October 21st. And so in tribute to him, we're replaying this interview. Uh, and a lot of this focuses on his uh, fellowship work that he was doing around that time. We were talking a little bit about kind of um, interpreting work and that, but and we, I want to talk about your kind of Welty experience, working with the Welty uh, photographs, the historic photos. But maybe first you can talk a little bit about kind of photography in Mississippi and maybe some of the notable photographers, if people don't know about, they should know about. Well, the amazing thing about Mississippi and its photographers is for years, and probably until just recently, Mississippi is better known for its arts photographers than than it was for any of its painters or potters. And uh, I'll give you an example of William Eggleston, who's known throughout the world, uh, and is is just, you know, renowned. He's Mississippi Connection. He lives in Memphis, of course, but his photography was known around the world where even at the time William, uh, I mean, Walter Anderson and uh, George Orr were just starting to be talked about. So it's amazing that the photography was our really first big representative of the arts, uh, visual arts, in you know, coming out of Mississippi. You know, we also had Bernie Imes, who's, you know, known throughout the country as Duke Joint Series, which showed Mississippi, you know, just really what we were. It's not really glossed over. It's beautiful work. We have uh, Jack Spencer, who's from Mississippi, lives in Nashville. We, ha we have this great amount of photography that has come out of here, which is Fairly unusual because when you think about photography and a great collections of Southern photography, we don't have that many. And I think a big reason is, um, well, if, if I can go back just a second and say, you see pictures of old New York. You say, see great pictures of, you know, California, uh, Chicago, turn of the century, just thousands of beautiful photographs. And there were a lot of amateur and semi-amateur photographers there. Mississippi was really so poor that, you know, I've done a little bit of research that the Kodak camera where you bought the roll of 100 and sent it back in in the late 1800s, you could literally buy five acres and a mule for that amount. So Yeah, the amount of money. Was, right. Yeah, just... It's So, you know, we didn't have a lot of people taking photographs. And uh, uh, I think, you know, that really 
shows up now, especially, you know, at the archives and history, you see great photos, but nothing like the collections you might see in, you know, or just the number of photos mm-hmm. documenting anything you can see. But Eudora Welty is one of the great exceptions of that in a, a time where, you know, it was during the Depression, poor and all that. She was getting out and shooting photographs and documenting our our lives and you know the South or especially in Jackson in a way that you know really hadn't been done before. We had Library of Congress photographers coming through and all that, but that's really people just pointing a camera at us and then moving on to the next scene. Eudora was internalizing a lot of these things and able to get into places that other people couldn't. So. That's where I first started to love her work. And and her work was a compliment, and correct me on this, some of her work was done um, for a local or a federal program. I mean, she was paid to be a photographer for a while, right? And, then... and She was paid to be a writer, okay. and she took her camera along. She worked for the WPA. Okay. Uh, if she had been paid to be a photographer, those negatives would be part of the Library of Congress like the other ones are. But they paid for her travel writing and and some of these other stories. Her uh, cameras, she paid for her film and processing. She paid for. She had her pictures processed at Standard Photo on Capitol Street, where every everybody knew about that. And uh, at one time, and uh, her, you know, amount of photographs is is it's it's pretty incredible considering that was not her main profession. Her, she was writing and but luckily she took her camera with her and it was a fairly narrow window of of photography too i mean she stopped really like by the 40s or was that well i think in the late 50s she left her camera on a train in france and it made her uh it was a really nice camera she basically bought a rolly twin lens camera and uh, i think it just made her so mad at herself she wouldn't buy another one but uh, she had a couple of nice cameras and a couple of real beginner cameras originally, and but she was able to produce a great body of work with it. So talk about you've had a long relationship with, with her work as, as, as basically an interpreter in terms of making prints from it. How did you get involved in, in doing that work? Well, I'd seen her work before and, uh, you know, went through the archives just just the see the amount of it and the formats of it and really kind of the quality of it. I'd seen a lot of her prints around, and there were some nice prints, but there was never anything done with um, museum prints in mind, meaning, um, you know, prints that were acid-free, that were not mounted on board, that were made to be in a portfolio, um, that were made to be hung in a museum with some maybe a little bit more Uh, a little bit more of a look to just them being fine art rather than images. And she had done a photo show in the 30s in New York with her photos at uh, a little camera store there. So, you know, she she had seen photography. She knew what she was doing. But uh, I think her terms in the times in the darkroom anyway had been, you know, she never really had a great darkroom. She was in small apartments in different places. So none of these prints were really great until later. You're listening to the Arts Hour. This is a rebroadcast of a 2011 interview with the photographer James Patterson. Patterson passed away on October 21st. Um, so 
um, you knew the work, and then you you got connected in with archives to to make museum quality prints of the work, or how did that get going? Well, I worked with one of the photographers who I assisted, uh, D. Gorton, and uh, I put together a proposal with the uh, Department of Archives and History and worked with uh, everybody there, Hank Holmes, Albert Hilliard, uh, uh, Patty Carblack, Chrissy Wilson, and, and were able to you know, show them that this work had a lot more value in this form than it did just as images. It had a place in the world of fine art rather than just as, you know, photographs to be used to illustrate book covers or something like that. What can you say about the work itself that, that makes it so unique or, or her perspective or her, tech, her, or her framing or whatever? Talk a little bit about what, what makes it just beyond a reporting type of photo. It's, you know, it was her personal experience. It was her internalizing what she saw and, and trying to convey that to the observer, to to me. And, uh, you know, here we have a woman that's just brilliant, can write, can, uh, she she knew a little bit about art. She had taken some art classes. I'm, I'm sure she was visually aware of painters and other photographers even working at that time. So I think you know, she probably inherently picked up things like rule of thirds, where you move the subject into a part of the format and, you know, just different areas, you know, the framing and all that. I think, you know, some people, as we know, you see a kid or a person that just inherently knows how to frame something. And um, I think she was one of those people. And that just freed her up to find the subjects and to make that personal connection she is able to take us into 1930 looking into the eyes of a woman you know who lived 80 years ago even today and 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 have empathy or sympathy for the subjects at times and to see so much more than we could just with a snapshot and that was just her personal relationship with the subject that took us, you know, back a hundred years, mm-hmm. and so that work, your proposal, kind of led to really kind of a a, a a rebirth of that work in a way. I guess people knew about it, but not really. Uh, a book came out of that eventually, right? And, and well, some exhibits of the there, work. There was a, a bigger book that the people at you know uh, University Press had done. They've done a bunch of books since. But what happened was it led to bigger museum shows. It led to literally an art market, photo art market opening up for her work. It uh which, you know, in the end, you know, where where is the value gonna be? Is it gonna you know, do we forget who shot a photo for a book jacket or whatever? We have, you know, museums that are set up to see the work. We've had exhibits of her work in New York and Washington and, you know, countless other places since this printing has come out. Uh, you have collectors valuing it. So I think what I was able to help the archives do is put that out to a, a larger, maybe more visually aware audience and to make it where the work was uh, archival and uh, would last, you know, several hundred more years. Yeah, yeah. And so, and then have, you've done some other work in terms of working with historic 
collections as well, or, or what, what what are some other areas of, in that that you've worked on? Well, I've worked with you know old photographs, old negatives, and old uh, processes for a long time. But I, uh, it's just another great you know story is in, I in uh, the early '90s bought a collection of photos from New York in the '20s and '30s at a an estate sale in Council Circle in Jackson. So. Uh, it's like 1,500 photographs, four by five negatives from a man named Vincent Edward Scott. And, uh, you know, been able to just do research on that. And, you know, again, I'm trying to figure out, I didn't, he died in 1956. I'm trying to figure out what his intentions were, you know, how he would want something presented. And, uh, you know, and I love the story and I love the photographs. So that's where it all starts, really. You have to kind of like the story and the photos. And you've got some samples of the of Scott's work on your website, I believe. I do, and my my website's one one nine gallery dot com, which is the name of the gallery I used to have. It's still a gallery of uh, downtown Jackson, but I I kept the uh, www. All right, very good. We're back for the final segment of the Arts Hour today. We're uh, bringing you a rebroadcast of a two thousand eleven interview with the photographer James Patterson. Patterson passed away uh, on. October 21st, and uh, we're pl- replaying this as a, as a tribute to him and his work. And uh, we were talking about his work with the Welty uh, pho- photographs in the last thing, but I want to talk about your work now, James. Um, you you have many different uh, irons in the fire as far as stuff that you're working on. I know you have the creative stuff that you have, you know, that you do and you have up in your studio space in uh, Fondren, but you also do editorial for magazines and uh, newspapers and that what what's some of the stuff you're working on right now well i um always kind of work for some magazine things i did uh, recently one of my you know favorite southern magazines garden and gun i did some things for the movie the help for them uh i work with portico magazine a lot here in jackson karen gilder and i are old friends and they give me a lot of creativity or leeway for me to be creative when when i can so, you know, th- those are things like, you know, portraits of people, uh, maybe an assignment about people that love living in their uh, Airstream trailer. So I got to go, you know, meet meet different people, get, get some different lifestyle stories, some visual things. But it's almost like a great way to practice your craft, you know, when you get thrown into a a story like that you've got to uh, be a problem solver so it's it's a great way for me to keep up i also have been really lucky to work for some newspapers and you know do a lot of work with the new york times which has been great because they give you some fun stories and um, they let me shoot things around the, the state usually with a writer so we have we have a lot of different experiences recently i've you know photographed the floods for them i've uh they love doing stories about uh, Mississippi's um, the death of, the death of catfish, the death of cotton, the death of farming. But, mm. but you know, and 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 to be really honest, they do some really in-depth stories too. They I think they're able to have, they have great writers that will spend the time, and uh, energy and actually get to know a story. So they're not talking about the death of Mississippi, but they. They do like to know, you know, the the economy. Uh, I get to work with the business section. I get to work with the real estate section, meaning, you know, the, what one of the most popular parts of the newspaper turns out to be the real estate 
section with, you know, what you get for $100,000 in a house. And so I do get to go photograph that kind of thing. And how is that different? How What's the approach from, you know, a story in the New York Times as opposed to uh, Garden and Gun, which is a more kind of, the photography seems a little more maybe controlled or, or you're, you're kind of, you're working on, the, the image is more... Well, I think I, mean, I might even want to call it, they're a little bit rounder. They, they've mm-hmm. got a little bit more leeway, you know. When you're working for the New York Times, you, you you know, you have the journalism ethics code that you really should follow on most things. Some of the uh, sections aren't that much. If I'm shooting a, a story for the New York Times that's news, you know, I would not manipulate anything at all. If, yeah. If you're shooting kind of an editorial story for Garden and Gun, it, it, you you get to sit there and maybe um, move around or move the subject around to where the good light is hitting them, you know. And you can do that on some uh, editorial stories, but you can't do it on news. So if I'm shooting news for anybody, I shoot for the Sun-Herald on the coast as well, you can't manipulate anything. But when you have a little freedom to do like Portico or Garden and Gun or another looser section of the newspaper, what it does is let you really start learning your craft and being creative. And and for that editorial stuff or the magazine stuff, I mean, some of it's just, you know, they want stuff that looks great, you know, to make their magazine look great. How did, how much direction do you get in a thing like that? Like, like the Airstream trailer, you had some images on your Facebook page of, you know, some Airstream, somebody living in or having an Airstream. How much direction do they give you as far as what they want to see? A lot of it's just taking a vague idea. That The Airstream trailer was really just supposed to be a story about the uh, interior of a home, a little playful thing. Uh, instead of doing the home interiors that we've all seen in magazines and Jackson and all, this is more of a, um, you know, a little play on that. And uh, But, you know, the, the couple that owned the Airstream loved it. It's such a cool-looking piece of Americana. I just couldn't just go in and shoot it and take some snapshots. So, you know, I spent, you know, a day or so on, on that story just to get what I liked out of it. And, you know, in, in the end, you know, you're, you're hoping you get paid. You're hoping people like your work. But uh, I think, you know, like any creative person, you know, you've got to like it. And if if you don't like it, then, you know, it, it, then it's just about the money. So mm-hmm. I try to make it. Uh, obviously, it's not about the money. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I try to make it where I like it. And probably people are also have seen a lot of your work. I mean, you as a create, you're a creative person, but you photograph a lot of creative people. You had a series that you submitted to the the commission for your in your application of of mostly Central Mississippi, but maybe some others of of writers and musicians and uh, other visual artists. And I was curious about you know your interest in them as subjects and maybe how you approach some of that. You know, the creative people are you know it's easy to photograph them because they're the most interesting people to me and you know they are uh and they're all funny looking too by the way <laughs> all creative people are very funny looking. that's uh the truth is they are interesting people that's why we're drawn to them you know drawn to their work and we're trying to see something you know about them about their work in them when i when i photograph them too but I've been able to work with musicians, with painters, with photographers, photographing them. Uh, really lucky to work with a lot of musicians, uh, Bobby Rush, uh, Little Milton, doing their um, CD covers, which is yeah. 
really fun and a, and a and a great way to be part of music. Talk a little bit about like maybe like a creative. You know, Bobby Rush has such a specific personality. I mean, he is more Bo- Bobby Rush is so much himself. You know, and how do you like when you got that job? Say okay, do a Bobby Rush uh, album cover. How do you go about? Showing Bobby Rush and, and what was your well with Bobby Rush it's uh, half of it's trying to hold him back and from, you know to keep him on the ground and uh, he's a really lovely man great to work with really creative just talent you know you can tell he came out of you know the womb with talent and uh, hasn't slowed down since but with him you know you you really I think he had done so many album covers that were just thrown on there and and we started going you know what's the name of the album bobby and so he's like well you know it's it's called raw so uh with bobby you know you have to take everybody separately but with bobby you know it is a lot of fun it's great music it's a lot of energy it's creative but it is fun too so you would never try to take Bobby into a place that visually that I don't think he would want to go. And I've tried it before with a real serious portrait and he just doesn't get it. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. So you just need to get him in the, in the overalls and and, And, and with with the shoes and the belt and, uh, you know, and, and Bobby is, uh, you know, he's electric. So you got to try to capture some of that. You're listening to the Arts Hour. Today is a rebroadcast of a 2011 interview with the photographer James Patterson. Before we get too long into it, I wanted to you talk a little bit about your work as a curator and 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 running a gallery and how that has maybe talk about how you got into that and then maybe how that's influenced your work in terms of you know curating other people's work. Well, I I kind of got into uh, just having a gallery and curating work is because. I think I had uh, one of the best spaces. It was on when you end up having a nice space, you're like, what What can I put in here? This one was on uh, Congress Street and Capitol Towers. And uh, right before I had it, I was working with Wyatt Waters and um, I'd edited his first two books of paintings. One's of Jackson uh, called Another Coat of Paint. The second one's uh, Painting Home, a book of paintings of Mississippi. But we'd worked together for about a year, and uh, I had this great big space in Capitol Towers on the first floor and just started putting up work. I had other friends that had work that didn't have representation. At the time, nobody was really showing photographs in Jackson. So that was my first idea is put some photography on the wall. And, you know, and I'm talking about in the uh, 1990s, the mid-90s, not that long ago really where galleries weren't mainstream galleries weren't showing photography and so we had jack spencer we had Ide kazari who's you know a great photographer we we had kent stalker we had uh just great photographers who didn't have much of a place to put up their work here and do you think it's just the the emphasis so much had been on painting here or it's just not an education in terms of there wasn't there wasn't that space for people to see photography, maybe? Or? I think a lot of it was just education. You know, we, we have a just a, you know, if it's a photograph, you know, what was the value of that? Well, I could do a photograph. Exactly. I, I have a camera, you yeah. know. And, uh, you know, but New Orleans, they had a gallery for fine photography, one of the best photo uh, galleries in the, in the world. And, uh, you know, people were starting to see that, well, yeah, and Ansel Adams, it's a beautiful thing. I think it's a great photograph. But then they're 
starting to read that, you know, one went for $750,000 and then, you know, so, you know, a lot of our art, like our literature, you know, probably follows um, what other people say about it. Meaning I, I don't know if Eudora was that popular in Jackson. Eudora Welty was that popular in Jackson in her writing until somebody else said she was. What did you get out of, you know, bringing that work in and curating it? How did that impact the way you did your own work then? A lot of it was just by uh, relationships with the artists growing and, and being able to deal with them really on more of a business level and uh, a level to see how they what they wanted out of their work. So I, I learned more about other artists and how they operated, how they act, uh, you know, what, what their expectations were. So, you know, that it was a good thing, and I love seeing art, you know. And to be honest with you, I'd, I'd rather see great photography than take great photography. But, you know, I'm pretty lazy, so there you go. But you're still doing stuff, and you've got a space up in the much-talked-about Fondren District. Uh, That's right. Uh, now, currently, uh, if it's still in the theaters, uh, I'm sure it's still in the theaters at this point. It's seen in the as seen in the help. As seen in the help. Your your block of uh, of uh, North State Street was uh, a backdrop for some of those scenes. I think right. It was. It just I think briefly. I hadn't seen the film, but uh, uh, I do share a studio there with uh, Ron Blaylock, another photographer, which is great. I think uh, it's another good relationship to have. You know, somebody else creative around you and. And to realize that we don't step on each other's toes. I think a lot of artists or a lot of photographers here might feel threatened with another photographer close by. But, you know, as long as you're doing your work then and they aren't stealing your models, you're okay. <laughs> What do you, what do you got what are you working on right now like what's what's I'm not not the editorial or not the well, newspaper the, work but what's your your creative work well with the artist fellowship what it, my whole plan has been to do the portraits you know I've always loved the portrait this is personal work you know if if you think about photographs of your family from oh 100 years ago or just old photographs 100 year old photograph what are you looking at? You know, you'll see a street, you'll see a building, you might see that, and, you know, it's close to what it used to be, but we're always looking at the people. And go back and find your great-grandmother's portrait and go, this is a beautiful portrait. And it says something about her. It's got some maybe clothes. There's some time elements involved, but there's also some just beautiful knowledge of photography and knowledge uh, of light, knowledge of art. And so what I'm really trying to do is is take some of those things that we've kind of lost. You know, pictures became Olin Mills. They became uh, school pictures. They became representations of ourselves without saying anything about us, you know. We all have a hard time finding ourselves in a school class book. Everybody starts looking the same. The pictures are all there. They don't say much about us at all. So, So is your project going to be technically going and trying to infuse your photography with some of that characteristic or is it more of a um how how are you taking that idea and and, and pushing it into the work itself? well I'm, I'm i'm taking you know basically two technologies a lot of you know digital photography is here i'm, I'm using it I, a lot of other people are using old processes and all that i'm going to try to embrace it because i can't think of you know Anything better, you know, I'm sure if Matthew Brady had a digital camera during the Civil War, he would have used it. I don't think he would have gone and invented uh, a wet plate process. And there's nothing wrong with it. I love the old processes, but uh, I think he would have used it. And I think it would have it would have 
actually helped what he was doing. I'm trying to take that same digital technology, simplifying the process of photographing someone, using old techniques of lighting and uh, maybe um, just posing and some other really old things and putting those together. I think a digital camera, we can't get closer than being able to Xerox someone. And so there's that technology. Now, what else can I do to enhance that, to maybe separate the person out of the technique? And yeah. that's going to be lighting and design. Well, James, I wish we had a whole other hour to get into this more deeply. But uh, for people who are interested in seeing some of your work, what's, your, what's the website where they can check out? It's www.119gallery.com, and I'm in Fondren. Thank you for listening. This was a rebroadcast of a 2011 interview with James Patterson on the Arts Hour. Patterson passed away on October 21st. For those of you who would like to see some of James's work, you can go to his website at gallery119.com. If you'd like to listen to the show again or share it with a friend, you can go to the MPB website at mpbonline.org, and they post all our past shows as streaming files.